You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 3. We'll read together verses 16 through verse 21. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now before your word because it is in here that our souls and our hearts are encouraged, rebuked, reproved, exhorted, comforted, and consoled. We pray, O Father, that as we look at your word that the meaning of this text might be the meaning which we hear and nothing else. We believe that when your word is properly preached, that your voice is rightly heard. We pray that that would be the case today. And that as we look at this word together, that our hearts would be humbled and encouraged. And this might be for your glory. We pray, O Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher for the glory of Christ and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, man has an incredible ability to overestimate himself. And when I say man, I don't mean men as opposed to women, though men have an incredible ability to overestimate themselves. But I mean man as in mankind. Um, It must be something that is endemic to our human nature, our depravity, our fallenness. There is obviously a pride in human sin that makes mankind um, able and willing at the drop of a hat to far overestimate almost everything about him and everything about what he does. Uh, Man has overestimated and always does his own abilities. Man looks at the world around him and then assesses his own abilities to conquer evil and disease and sickness. And we look at our own abilities and we have a far too great estimate of our own abilities. We think that someday we'll be able to cure sickness and illness and anything that plagues us. Technology will present to us eventually a utopia I actually had a person who was a doctor say to me one time, I believe that before long we'll be able to cure even death itself. (laughs) And I thought to myself, I didn't say it, but I thought to myself, I would bet my life that you will never be able to cure death. Wouldn't that be ironic, huh? We've cured death, so now we have to kill Jim. We We overestimate not only our own abilities, but also our own wisdom. We look at the Word of God and the wisdom of God, and we devalue that, and instead we turn to human wisdom. And almost daily, mankind and the world pumps out at us all of man's pseudo-intellectual abilities and pseudo-wisdom, really wisdom which is falsely so-called. And the Word of God and the truth of God is exchanged for a lie and for human wisdom instead. And even within the church, you see this happening where God's Word is set aside and every man-made conceivable idea of church marketing and church growth and church ministry is put instead in its place. And we substitute the wisdom and the Word of God for the wisdom and the Word of men. And we love to think of ourselves as being so wise. Man loves to overestimate his own intellectual abilities. We think we're so smart, don't we? 
that we can put a hunk of metal on Mars and we can shoot off a glorified camera into space to take pictures and send that back. And oh, aren't we so smart? Overestimate our own intellectual capacities. Then man loves to overestimate even his own achievements. We pride ourselves in our work, in our reputation, in all of our awards and our rewards and what other people think about us and our careers and what people are saying about us. And we're listed in the who's who. We give out Nobel Peace Prizes to people who, they don't do anything anymore, but it used to be that we gave out Nobel Peace Prizes to people who actually did things and accomplished things. Anymore, they're kind of like awards at the fun fair. You get them just for showing up and trying to participate. And we overestimate not only our abilities and our wisdom and our intellect and our achievements, but also our spiritual condition. Man loves to believe that he is inherently good. And there is within us this little spark of the divine and a little bit of the life of God in each one of us. And we are born that way with this little spark of the divine. And all that is missing is just a little help from God because man really is not all that bad. He's not all that wicked. He is almost able to get into heaven by himself. All we need is God to just unlock the door for us and we could kick ourselves into the gates of heaven. We are almost there and... Along comes God and gives us the little bit of help that we need. And I do my part and he does his part. And we link our arms and we walk together in this thing called faith. And together, he and I work together to get me saved. That's the typical Pelagian mentality that plagues the evangelical church almost worldwide, especially in Western Christianity. It is the notion that man is good, that man doesn't really need much more than just a little help from God, that man can do All kinds of things that please God, including repent and believe and do good and exercise faith and turn from his sin and do all of the good things which would please God. But we just, we're just come just this short, just a little bit short. And that's where Jesus comes in. He kind of comes along and just pushes us up over the edge of the hump, gives us just that little bit that we lack and we can get into heaven with that. We overestimate our spiritual abilities. And then along comes Jesus and gives us the true and right and proper and only correct diagnosis of the human heart and the human condition. Men love darkness rather than light. Now just like a doctor who tells you something you don't know, sometimes the truth from our physical and our spiritual physician is difficult to receive and embrace. You go to the doctor and you don't always like what you hear from the doctor. He may give you a diagnosis that you don't want to hear. And you have a difficult time embracing that and accepting it. You want to deny it. You even want to get a second opinion. But yet the words of Jesus in John chapter 3 are true. And they are the kindest words that could be spoken because they are true words. And they give to us a right and proper diagnosis. A right and proper assessment of the human heart and the human condition. And it is nothing, nothing flattering whatsoever. Jesus never said anything flattering about natural man, unsaved man. He never said anything flattering about an unbeliever or an unrepentant or an unregenerate individual. Everything Jesus had to say about the natural human heart can only be summed up with one phrase. Utterly, totally, completely hopeless. Hopeless. Hopelessly corrupt. Hopelessly lost. Hopelessly dark. And yet those words and that assessment is the kindest thing he could have said because it is truth about our condition in an unregenerate state that we need to hear. And that is what Jesus offers to us in John 3. And that is what he offered to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Because it is exactly what Nicodemus needed to hear. Nicodemus was in an unbelieving state. Nicodemus did not believe that 
with, did not believe Jesus that he needed to be born again. And so Jesus then, addressing his unbelief, condemns Nicodemus for his unbelief and saying, if you're not going to believe heaven, earthly things, how will you believe when I tell you heavenly things? Then he tells him a whole host of heavenly things. And we, of course, know that Nicodemus did not believe that, did not receive that testimony, at least not in John chapter 3. And Jesus put his, puts his finger right on the heart of the issue, Nicodemus's unbelief. Nicodemus, because of your unbelief, you stand already condemned under the wrath of God. That's why he says in verse 36, if you believe not and obey not the Son, you'll never see life, but the wrath of God abides on you. So John says. That's the summation of everything Jesus said to Nicodemus. But what rests at the heart of unbelief? Jesus is able to give us a diagnosis of that, because you remember at the end of chapter 2, what we saw at the end of John chapter 2? Jesus did not need for any man to tell him what was in man, because he knew what was in man. He knew everything about men. He knows everything about you and your heart condition and where you're at and your sanctification process, your regenerate or your unregenerate state, wherever, whichever one you are in. He knows everything about that and everything there is to know about you. Not only you, but all men, Nicodemus included. He knows what is in man. And he doesn't need for anybody to say, Jesus, here is what natural man is like. Here is what mankind really is like. Jesus didn't know that. He was able to give a right and proper diagnosis of the human heart. And he does, beginning in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. And I asked you last week, what is it that rests at the root of unbelief? Why is it that our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our relatives, our aunts, our uncles, our children, sometimes even our spouses or our grandchildren or our parents, reject the gospel? It almost seems insane, does it not? You and I, from the perspective of salvation, look at those around us who do not believe and who are not regenerate, and we say, how can you reject this? How can you deny this? How can you live without this? What seems to me so precious, so obvious, so rational, so truthful, so lovely, so worthy of my adoration, how can you reject it? It seems to be insane, isn't it? It is insane. What type of a sane person loves darkness rather than light? That's not sanity, that's insanity. And yet that is the condition that Jesus says the natural man exists in. John chapter 3, verse 19. And we've been introduced in the Gospel of John, particularly chapter 3, to a whole bunch of contrasts. We have seen the contrast between belief and unbelief. We've seen the contrast between believers and unbelievers, between uh, heaven and hell, perishing and eternal life, between being condemned and not being condemned. And now beginning in verse 19 of chapter 3, there are more contrasts that are laid out for us. There are those who love the truth, and there are those who hate the truth. There are those who come to the truth, there are those who will not come to the truth. There are those who, who uh, do not believe or believe, and there are those who do not believe. So more contrasts in John chapter 3, verse 19. Read the verses with me again, and I want you to notice the structure. Verse 19 is the general principle. I told you last week I was hoping to get to the end of chapter 21. I'll tell you right now we're not going to, because John chapter 3, verse 19 was... I'm going to be speeding to get through everything that I hope to get through today and still get us out of here at a decent time. John chapter 3, verse 19 is the general principle. The general principle. Here is the general principle of truth. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's the heart of the whole passage. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. That's the general principle, the truth, that sort of permeates the whole passage. Now in verse 20... Jesus applies that or illuminates it, illustrates it with the behavior, the conduct of an unbeliever. Verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Then in verse 21, the principle of verse 19 is applied and illustrated in a believer. 
But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So verse 19 is the general principle, and that's all the further we're going to get. Then next week, Lord willing, we will see how that is fleshed out in those who respond to the light and those who do not respond to the light. The general principle, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Now, the word judgment and the concept of judgment we're familiar with because we've seen it all the way through John chapter 3. We've looked at those who perish. We've looked at those who are condemned, who are condemned already, those who abide under the wrath of God because of their unbelief. So here the idea of judgment is something that's not new to us, though it's this idea of judgment is used in a slightly different way. It's a different word than we've seen earlier in John chapter 3. This is a word that speaks of the process of judgment. It is not the sentence of condemnation. It's not the act of judgment that is perishing or hell that is here being addressed. It is the process of judgment. In other words, we might say this. What is it that leads to judgment? What is it that brings about judgment? What is the cause of judgment? What is it in the life of an unbeliever that unfolds, that happens, that he does, which results in his judgment? That's the idea. This is the judgment. This is the process of judging. What is it that goes on behind the scenes that brings about the just wrath of a holy God? It is this. That light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light. Now, over and over again in Scripture, and often in the New Testament, the concepts of light and darkness are used. They are opposites, and they're used oftentimes to, in, in a metaphorical fashion, to speak of goodness and that which is not good. And I would say badness, but like evil. Goodness and evil. Good and evil. Or truth and error. And that which is light is not darkness, and where darkness is, light cannot be, and where light is, there is no, there is no darkness in the Scriptures. So, truth, or Sorry, light here in this passage is used in some way, a little bit metaphorically, but if you'll notice, if you have an NASB or an NIV sitting in your lap, you'll notice that the translators translated light and they capitalized it. You see that? If you have a King James or New King James, you'll notice that it's not capitalized. Why the difference? Because the people who translated the NIV and the NASB looked at that passage and they said, you know what, we think what's being spoken of here is not light as a metaphor, but light as a synonym. Light is a synonym for what or whom. It's actually for whom. And the NASB and the NIV, by capitalizing light, are indicating that the light here being spoken of is none other than Jesus Himself. It's not light in a metaphorical, in a more metaphorical sense as in some sort of intangible good. It's not light in an ethical sense as in truth or some sort of intangible, uh, intangible concept of truth. But it is light as a synonym of Jesus Himself. Now, why would we say that? Because back in John chapter 1, if you want to turn there, you can, you'll notice in verse 4 that John, in introducing the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, says He is the Word who existed with the Father and was with God and was God. And verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The NASB translates it again, capital light, because He is, Jesus is, the light of men. Verse 5, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. See, we were introduced in this epistle, this gospel to light and darkness as contrasting opposites that stand for certain things right from the very beginning. Jesus himself is the light. That's why it says in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, that is John the Baptist. He came to bear witness about the light, to testify about the light. Not just goodness, not just the idea of truth, but the one who is infinitely and ultimately and perfectly good and who is infinitely, ultimately and perfectly truth, that is Jesus. He came to testify about Jesus. So here in John chapter 1, light is synonymous with Jesus. It's another title for Christ. In John chapter 3, back to John chapter 3, I believe that the same thing is being done there. 
But here Jesus is using the title of himself, saying that this one who has come into the world, that the Father sent into the world, verse 16, that descended from heaven, verse 13, who came into the world not to condemn but to save, verse 17, that one who came into the world is none other than Jesus. This is the judgment. That the light, that is he who is infinite light, who in his very personality, character, and nature was light unapproachable, came into the world which was darkness, and men loved the darkness. Now I could think of no greater condemnation upon humanity than that phrase, that men loved the darkness. What men is John and Jesus speaking of? What men? Well, we could sort of narrow that down. We could begin with the immediate context. Who, to whom is Jesus speaking? Nicodemus. Was Nicodemus in a believing state or an unbelieving state? He was in an unbelieving state. And Jesus is doing what? He is showing to Nicodemus what lies at the heart of Nicodemus's unbelief. Nicodemus, here is the problem with you. You are cut off from the light of God and you must be born again. And you will never see the kingdom of heaven without the new birth. If you have a hard time believing that, and if you reject what I am saying, and you reject me, it will only prove that you love darkness more than you love light. Because I am the light that has come into the world, and if you reject me, it is only due to the fact that you love darkness and you hate the light. If you remain in your unbelief, Nicodemus, you will demonstrate your love, your affection, for moral, ethical, and spiritual darkness. And you will show your utter hatred for that which is light when the light has come into the world. But is the, is the statement, men love darkness rather than light, is that true only of Nicodemus? Or would it have been true of other people at the time as well? On a broader scope, it would have been true of other people at the time as well, right? When light came into the darkness, you would expect that the light would be welcomed and received and adored and thanked. Thank you for coming in and turning on the light. Thank you for doing that. But instead, he was rejected. So in a broader sense, that statement, that men love darkness rather than light, applies not just to Nicodemus, but also to all of those who were around Jesus and saw him and rejected him while he was here. That is, the Jews. He came into his own and his own received him not. And anybody who mocked him and cajoled him and hated him and turned from him and wouldn't believe on him and, and spurned him, all of them could be characterized by this phrase, men love darkness, they love darkness rather than light. That's why they rejected Christ. But does it go beyond the men and women who were alive in Jesus' day? It most certainly does, friends. That men love darkness rather than light was true before the light ever stepped into the world to the countless millions, even billions who existed before the light came into the world. It was true not only of the men who existed before the light came into the world, but of Nicodemus and the others who lived and breathed and saw Jesus at the time that the light came into the world. And it is true of every individual, every fallen child of Adam, son or daughter, who has ever been born in the history of the world up until now. And it will be true of every fallen child and son and daughter of Adam, fallen as they are, from this point until the end of time. It will always be true. Why? Because our nature is corrupt. And it's really being dishonest with the text. It's being dishonest with the Word of God. And it's being dishonest with yourself. If you say, this applies to the Jews, or this applies to the people in Jesus' day, but this never applied to me. Does this apply to you now? If you're a believer, it does not. If you're a believer, then what is being described is you in the state out of which you were rescued by salvation. If you're an unbeliever, then this is where you're at now. You love darkness rather than light. If you're a believer, then verse 21 describes you. You've come to the light. You come to the light, 
and you embrace the light. You love the light because you don't like darkness. You come to the light so that your deeds might be exposed. Keep in mind, this describes the state out of which you were rescued. And it describes everyone that men love the darkness. Now, if light is a synonym or a uh, um, an indication of what exists with Christ, or in other words, a description of Christ himself, then light would be purity, it would be holiness, righteousness, truth, it would be goodness and kindness, it would be everything that Christ is. That would be the light. The opposite of that darkness would be the absence of light. So what do you get when you take all of the qualities that define Christ out of the mix? You're left with darkness. Darkness would be impurity and immorality and licentiousness and wickedness and evil and error and everything that is not truthful. Everything that is not Christ is what the darkness is. And that is what men love. Men love the darkness. Why? Because we drink, and when I say we, keep in mind, I'm not describing believers, I'm describing humanity in its unredeemed, unsaved state apart from the grace of God. We drink iniquity like water. We love darkness like a fish loves water. We love darkness only, always, and continually. Always darkness. Because those who do not come to the light hate the light. They hate it. They hate it with a passion. They hate it as much as they love darkness. And these two things are opposite, light and darkness, and love and hatred. And man in his unregenerate, unsaved state loves darkness and he hates the light. Why? Well, partly because he exists in a state of intellectual darkness. Ephesians 4 says we are to walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened. Being alienated from the life of God, the understanding, the intellect of the unsaved individual is darkened. His mind is affected by the fall. He cannot think clearly. He is, in the words of Scripture, an utter and total and complete fool. Darkened in his intellect, darkened in his mind. Now, does that mean that unbelievers never do anything intellectual? Of course I don't believe that. Are they able to fix complex machinery? Yeah, we can send chunks of metal up onto Mars and throw cameras out into space and take pictures. We can do all kinds of things that are technologically advanced. It's not that unsaved man is stupid. It is that unsaved man in his condition of spiritual darkness, when it comes to assessing and thinking clearly about spiritual things, is utterly unable to do so because his mind is in darkness. And he loves he loves in his mind to exist and to operate in a state of darkness. And he does not come to the light. And not only is he intellectually darkened, but he is morally darkened and exists in a kingdom of darkness, and he loves the kingdom of darkness. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says, We have been delivered, taken out of the kingdom of darkness, and translated into the kingdom of his dear Son. That is the kingdom of light. We who once were darkness are now light in the Lord. We lived, existed, operated, behaved, ran all of our life and all of our thinking and all of our spiritual faculties and exercises, everything was characterized by one thing and one thing only. Total, complete darkness. And listen, we loved it. We loved it. The word is agape. We loved it unconditionally. Tell me, what has darkness ever done for an unbeliever? Anything? You know, agape is the one-directional, unconditional love that you put on something, whether it is worthy of your love or not. That's the word that's used. Men unconditionally, even though darkness is not worthy of it, cast their affection on darkness, and they love darkness, even though they get nothing back from darkness. All darkness ever offers them is ruin, total destruction, uh, eternal hell, perishing, the loss of everything, and separation from all that is their good. And yet men willingly, willingly 
knowingly place their affection on darkness and they love darkness the way that they ought to love light. Now friends, there is nothing that demonstrates the corruption of the human nature more, more than this misplaced affection. The very thing that we ought to love, we hate. The most lovely thing in all of the universe, natural man hates. And the most detestable, hateful, despicable thing in all of the universe, natural man loves. Mankind's nature is horribly and wickedly corrupt. And it loves darkness from the moment of its birth. came across a quote by an old Puritan, J.R. Miller. And he says this, quote, Every baby starts life as a little savage. I want to stop right there because that right there is worthy of your contemplation for years to come. Every baby starts life as a little savage. And by the way, if you are a parent and you deny that fact, do not ever ask me to let your kids hang out with my kids because there is nothing more dangerous and more corrupting to good character and the efforts of good parents than to let their children hang out with the children of parents who think their children are angels. That is horrible. Every child starts life as a little savage. Every last one of them. Little savages. All right, now back to this good quote. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these things, and he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. Did you catch that? You take that from that infant, and I will tell you what's going on inside of that infant is a murderous rage that he would kill you for that watch if he was physically able to do it. That's the truth. And I'm not describing just my family. He is dirty. Back to the J.R. Miller. He is dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, and no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. And if permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulse of actions to satisfy every want, every child would grow up a criminal, a killer, a thief, and a rapist. The job of a parent is to take that little savage and train it to live in a society without being a criminal, a thief, a rapist, and a murderer. That's what every parent has to do. Oh, by the way, end quote. It was J.R. Miller. The rest was my commentary. Now, you say, no, Jim. Not me. Really? You want to go home and just glance through the news headlines and then come back and tell me about the innate goodness of man? Just go watch the news for an hour and then come back and tell me how innately good man is. This world is filled with savages. And if it were not for the common, restraining grace of God, this whole world would be a bloodbath on a scale that is a thousand times worse than anything you could ever imagine or have ever seen on a news broadcast. Why? Because men, in their natural state, without the grace of God, love, love darkness. And they love it passionately so. It is our nature that is corrupt. Our very nature. Something is wrong with us, and it went wrong with us in Genesis 3, that causes us to place our affection on the very thing that we should detest. There's something wrong with your nature. Wrong with our nature from the moment of birth. How does this affect your choices? 
He said, I believe man is inherently good and has a libertarian free will. And he can choose to do that which pleases God or he can choose to do evil. I don't believe that. Do I believe that man chooses? Absolutely. But man chooses only and always sin. He can choose the type of sin, the degree of sin, the person with whom he sins, the person whom he sins against, the timing of his sin, the extent of his sin, the depth of his sin, the flavor of his sin. He can choose everything about his sin, but he can only choose sin. All he ever wants to do is sin. Why? Because he loves darkness. He doesn't do light. He would never choose righteousness. Look, I love steak. I love steak, and the redder the better. And I hate liver. Now, you offer me a steak and a liver, and I'm going to choose the steak every time. You offer that to me ten times, I will choose the steak ten times out of ten because I hate liver. I don't care how it's cooked. I don't care how you spice it up. I don't care if you grind it up and put it in sausage. I hate liver. I love steak. Give me the choice between steak and liver a million times, and a million times I will choose steak. Why? Because I love the steak and I hate the liver. Give an unbeliever a choice between unrighteousness and righteousness and they will choose unrighteousness every single time. Why? Because the nature is corrupt. They hate righteousness. They hate the light. That is what Jesus said. That is what He meant. Men love darkness and they hate light. They will never choose the light. Never. Never in a million years. Why? They detest it so passionately. It goes against everything in them. They will always choose exactly what is in accordance with their nature. Their nature is corrupt. They will choose what they love, and they love darkness, and they will always choose darkness. Every single time, without fail, without exception, always darkness. Why? The same reason I choose steak over liver. I love it. I love it. And I hate liver. They ask the talking heads of our generation, our day, what is wrong with man? Well, he's uneducated. So what we really need to do is we need to throw more money at education. We need to get better teachers and better standards and test them higher and, and create a bigger uh, bureaucracy. And if we could just get people educated, we could educate people out of the sin. The cause of all of our social ills, the cause of teenage pregnancy and alcoholism and drug abuse and violence and rape and wife beating and the breakdown of the society and the fun, uh, family is all due to the fact that man is just not educated enough. And if we could just raise these little savages, they would never say that, but this is what they're saying in essence, if we could just raise those little savages and give them a good education, we could educate them out of being savages. No. Or they would say to us that the reason behind all of the social ills of our day is poverty. And if we could just spread the wealth around a little bit, and if we could give everybody a good house, a good education, a good car, a good job, all of life's luxuries, and take the money that is in the hands of far too few people and spread it out so that everybody gets to enjoy it a little bit, if we could eliminate poverty through a great utopian society, we could kill, cure all of our social ills. No. Or some people will say the problem with man is he makes bad choices. And if we could just regulate, if we could just legislate, if we could just keep him, restrict him from making bad choices take away his freedom so that he can't choose to do the bad things, if we could do that, then we could cure all of our social ills. No, no, no. A thousand times no. The problem is not education, poverty, or the bad choices that we make. There's something much more profound and much deeper that only the gospel can cure. And what is it? We love darkness. We love darkness. And we hate light. It's not education. It's not poverty. It's not anything else. All that stuff is a smokescreen. All that stuff is just the issues. That's just the symptoms. The root problem 
is that we love darkness rather than light. And so when man is given light, how does he respond to it? Romans chapter 1, he suppresses the truth in what? Unrighteousness. Do you think people really don't know that there's a God? They know that. Creation tells them that. Their conscience tells them that. They know that intuitively and instinctively. The Bible never argues for the existence of God, never lays out a case to try and prove that God exists. It assumes that God exists, and it basically assumes that God exists on a level that this, if you deny that, you're a fool. It is so self-evident to anybody who opens up their eyes and looks around them that to deny that God exists is a fool. And man, rather than sitting down and worshiping and serving the Creator who has revealed Himself in creation, takes the truth of creation and the truth of conscience, and He suppresses it on righteousness and worships and serves the creature rather than the Creator. That is what men do with light. Why do they do that? Because they're ignorant? Because they're poor? Because they make bad choices? Why does mankind do that? He does it because he loves what? Darkness rather than light. And he will always choose the darkness, if given a choice, between darkness and light. Why? Because he will always choose the very thing upon which he has set his affection. Upon which he has set his affection. And that is nothing else and nothing other than darkness. Why does he do this? Jesus said in verse 19, because his deeds are evil. You see, light exposes the deeds of darkness, doesn't it? They talk to the psychiatrists and the social therapists of our day, and you ask them what the problem is, and they'll say education or poverty. They have a hundred other things. Environment was abused by his parents or whatever it is that they think resulted in this anomaly of society, as if a savage is an anomaly. It's a righteous individual, non-savage, that's an anomaly anymore. But they will say that all of these external things resulted in this anomaly, this little savage in our society. And so we need to cure all of his ills by correcting all of these other things around it. They arrive at that conclusion because they are unwilling to accept Jesus' testimony concerning the human condition, and that is the men love darkness rather than light. So you ask a social a sociologist or a psychiatrist or any of those other mental doctors, and they will say, and you ask them, do men love darkness rather than light? Is the problem a spiritual problem? Is the problem a heart problem? Is the problem something corrupt or wicked in the nature of men? And they will say, no, that's not the problem. And they refuse to acknowledge that because to acknowledge that would be to bring themselves into the light, and they don't want to come to the light. Why? Because they love darkness. And they can't even, man cannot even diagnose his own problem because he is so blinded by the darkness in which he exists. And to diagnose correctly his own problem would mean stepping into the light. Men don't want to step into the light. Step into the light is to reveal all of their wicked deeds. That the deeds of the human heart, the deeds of the unregenerate, the unsaved, unbelieving man or woman, the deeds of the fallen person is only wicked continually. In their motive, in their desires, in their affections, in everything that they do, every thought, act, deed is corrupt and stinks of sin. However well it might look to you and I, however good, humanly speaking, on the outside it might appear, in the eyes of God it stinks of sin because it comes from a spiritually dead sinner who has set their affections on darkness and loves not the truth and loves not light. That is the condition of man. Are you depressed yet? Some of you are thinking, I need to get home and train my little savage. Light reveals the truth, and people don't kind of come to the truth. Because to step into the light is to admit how naked I am in the sight of God, how lacking I am in righteousness, how unprepared I am for death, how everything I have done has been a lie, it's been for the king of darkness, it has been for myself, for my sin. To step into the truth is to admit to all of that. To humble yourself in the sight of God is to admit that everything you've done and everything you are is so desperately wicked, so desperately corrupt, so desperately needy and hopeless and helpless that you cannot do anything worthy, anything worthy of eternal life or forgiveness of sins. 
Now, there's certainly much more that could be said, but let me sort of draw out the implications of verse 19 in basically three areas. First, you and I can address this to an unbeliever. If you're sitting here this morning and you have never turned from your sin and repented of your sin, I'm going to plead with you again, as I have been all the way through John chapter 3, come to Christ, because this describes you. However right and good you might think you are in your own eyes, however ameliable you are to God in your own view, you are hostile to God in reality. This is God's diagnosis of the unbeliever. And if you have not turned to Christ, you have not turned from your sin, you have not turned to Him and repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ and been born again, no matter how good you are, you are not good. This describes you. You really love darkness more than you do light, and that is why you refuse to come to the light. And you can come to this church and sit here and listen to sermons and act outwardly good for the rest of your natural life, for another 50 years, and then die in your sin. And you will find out that the whole time everything you did was for yourself and for your sin and to cover up your deeds of wickedness because you do not love the truth. You do not love light. All you love is wickedness and darkness and serving yourself. So come to Christ today. Second, you and I can address this to any sort of philosophy of church ministry that we come across. And I speak this in just general terms. If our philosophy of church ministry is that we are going to do everything that we do in order to make unbelievers feel comfortable here, what do you have to do with the light? You have to hide it. Is that not obvious? You have to hide the light from the unbeliever. Why? Because unbelievers love darkness. And unbelievers will only feel comfortable in a church where the light is hidden and darkness permeates everything that is done. Where truth is shadowed and truth is kept from people in order to not offend anybody, no matter what condition or what state or what lifestyle they might be living. And any church that thinks that their job or their role is to make unbelievers feel comfortable has to hide the light so that the unbelievers will feel comfortable. And I'll tell you, here's my philosophy. I think a church should be a place where you turn on all the lights, every light, not just in the building, but you know I'm speaking metaphorically here, spiritually. You turn on the light and you shine it as bright as you possibly can because believers love the light and come to the light. And the unbeliever will either hate the light and leave, which is good for the whole body, or he will get saved as a result of seeing the light. God will do a work. So you put the truth out on the table, all your cards out, and you preach and teach the truth. You shine the light, your light to one another. That is how unbelievers get saved, not by hiding the light from them. Third, you and I can apply this or address this to ourselves as believers. Is it not obvious to you, I think it is to me, that this is the condition out of which Christ rescued you? If you got saved early or later in life, if you got saved later in life, then you know how much you love sin. You know how years you spent in vanity and pride, caring not that your Lord was crucified, You know how much you reveled in sin, basked in sin, enjoyed sin, kept yourself away from righteousness, kept yourself away from the light, how much you loved sin and every expression of sin. You know that full well. If you got saved early in life, then you have been graciously saved or saved and delivered from ever experiencing or expression expressing your love for darkness to the fullest extent. And you ought to thank God for that. Thank God if you got saved early in life and He spared you from expressing fully your love for darkness. Praise Him for it. But whether you got saved early in life or later in life, one thing that all of us have in common is that this describes the condition out of which we were delivered. Hopeless, helpless, rebellious, and loving darkness. 
Something happened in your heart, if you're a believer. Something happened in your heart that changed your affection. The only way I will ever eat liver is if something changes up here where I love liver. Until that time, knowingly, no piece of liver will ever pass these clean lips. Something happened to me at the moment of my salvation that made me long for the light and hate darkness. And I saw all of my sin, and suddenly I hated everything that I once loved. And suddenly I found lovely everything that I had spent years hating. What is to account for that? Jim Osmond? Are you kidding me? There is nothing inside of me that explains that. I cannot take credit for one ounce of my salvation because something happened in my heart that changed my desires, changed my affections, gave me spiritual life, gave me the capacity to understand, turned on the light, and I loved it, and I saw it, and I came to it, and I embraced it, and I cherished it more than I ever did the darkness. You know what that's called? Regeneration. It's what we've been talking about in John chapter 3. The problem with man is not that God does not love him. It is not that God has not elected him. It is not that God has not given him opportunities to repent. The problem with the unbeliever is that he loves darkness rather than light. And until that changes, until God does a work to deliver him from that affection for darkness, you cannot lure an unbeliever away from his darkness. You can't do it. You can't lure him away from darkness by turning on the light and saying, come here, come here. If you just see how good the light is, then you'll want it. No, they love darkness and they hate the light. You cannot convince an unbeliever to trade his darkness for light. You can't convince him to do that. Nor can you dress up the light and somehow make it appealing to the unbeliever. Because the minute you take off all of the facade, he's going to see it for what it is and run from the light. Why? Because he hates the darkness. So this is addressed to unbelievers. If you're here, you've never trusted Christ. I pray that today would be the day of your salvation and that you would come to the light and that God would do a work in your heart to change your affections from darkness to light. And this, of course, is addressed to believers. Who do we praise for our salvation? He who is the light, who changed our hearts so that we would no longer love darkness, but that we would love light. And we praise Him and we thank Him and we glory in Him because He has done something in us that no natural man ever could have done. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do rejoice in so great a salvation. As Your people, we thank You for delivering us from the kingdom of darkness and translating us into the kingdom of Your beloved Son. We thank You that we who once were darkness are now light in the Lord and that we can walk as children of light. We thank You that in the light we have fellowship with You and with Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You for this change which has been wrought in our heart, which has changed our affections, for delivering us from all impurity and love of wickedness and love of unrighteousness, for changing our nature, for changing our hearts, for drawing us to Your Son. We praise You for that grace in Christ. Thank You for setting us free. And we pray, O God, that You would give us compassion and love and a desire to share the light with those who are still in darkness and who hate the light. We pray that we might be faithful proclaimers of that truth 
and not hide the very thing which is the remedy for their sin-sick soul. We ask these things and we praise you this morning in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.